Welcome to the Small Nonprofit Podcast with down-to-earth practical advice on how to get things done in your small organization. You are going to change the world and we can help. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Cindy Wagman, and I'm joined by my co-host, Anya McGlynn. Hello, everybody. So, Anya, today I'm going to credit you with bringing Hawa, our guest, to the podcast. We've worked with Hawa in one of her previous roles, but to be honest, I actually had never met her. You had. Oh, wow. Um, I didn't even know that. Yeah. So, um, so, yeah, do you want to tell us a little bit about how, how you met Hawa and yeah. um, the impetus for having her on the podcast? Yeah, definitely. Um, as as you mentioned, uh, we we met uh, Hawa in her previous role and um, sort of in a in a client relationship, and um, you know I I just thought the world of her. I thought she was uh, she was just an, an awesome, impressive person, and uh, so you know we've kept in touch and um, done other sort of community work together, but. Um, um, Hawa is uh, one of the most, I would say, focused and insightful speakers on the theme of white supremacy. Um, she has a way of making the complex interaction between individual responsibilities, organizational responsibilities, and sort of system structures at large, um, of keeping them separate and discussing, but descri- discussing them um, as part of a matrix of, of um, uh, I guess, of oppression, of creation of instability or, or, or um, inequity. Um, and it's just, it's such a delight um, to be able to throw <laughs> my naive half-baked ideas at her <laughs> and for her to say, yes, Anya, and then, and then turn that into something that's, that's really helpful and sense-making <laughs> for her listeners. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that tends to be my experience of, of speaking with Hawa. Um, she, uh, she has an ability to, to take some stuff that's really, really complex and difficult and, and make it, um, very understandable, relatable and actionable. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think you basically summed up our conversation perfectly, um, which it was a pleasure sort of co-interviewing Hawa with you. Mm Um, and I think, you know, everyone get your your pens, pencils out. Um, there's such great insight uh, that Hawa has um, to share. And again, help us, you know, I think as a whole, we've made a very um, deliberate decision to continue to have, and I would say deepen, and our commitment to having conversations around anti-racism, anti-oppression. Um, earlier, we talked about um, truth and reconciliation and decolonization. These conversations are not going anywhere. We'll continue to have them because they need to be had. Um, and, you know, having Hawa be part of that uh, is, is just such a treat. So, yeah, with with that, um, it's a pleasure to welcome Hawa Mira to the podcast. She's a proven strategic senior leader, equity consultant, and community organizer with 12 years of nonprofit experience focused on high-impact community development. In 2017, she completed a master's degree in environmental studies from York University, where her research examined community storytelling as a place of transformation. Hawa is a critical writer, commentator, and columnist with Ricochet Media that has been featured on McLean's, 
Briarpatch Magazine, Metro Morning, CBC, City TV, and Rabble, among others. Please join us in welcoming Hawa. Hawa, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm so um, ready to have this conversation. I don't want to say excited because it's going to be a hard conversation, I think, but an important one. Um, And uh, every now and then I have the pleasure of having Anya, who's my co-host for the podcast, uh, co-interview as well. So Anya, um, welcome to the interview side of things. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to to be here today and uh, honored to be joined uh, by our guest and um, someone I'm I'm happy to call uh, a friend and colleague in in a couple of different ways, um, Hawamiri. So um, yeah, it's going to be a great episode today. So, uh, so again, thank you Alice, so much for, uh, for participating. Um, so I'm going to kind of jump right in, right into the topic of, uh, of our conversation today. Uh, we're really focusing on, uh, white supremacy, particularly as, um, we feel it, experience it and, uh, recognize it in the nonprofit sector. Um, how, uh, um, you know, as we talked about in your introduction, um, you do a lot of uh, really amazing, interesting workshops on white supremacy, uh, one of which you did this summer called uh, Breaking Rank, uh, Responding to White Supremacy, and then another one that you called Breaking Rank, Refusing White Supremacy. So I'm really interested in, in uh, the concept of a response to white supremacy and then refusing white supremacy. I really love those two terms. Um, and I wonder if for our listeners, you can talk about what is the difference between responding to white supremacy and refusing it? Yeah, no, that's a really, really great question, Anya. And again, thank you so much for having me as part of the podcast. I think we don't talk about white supremacy in the nonprofit or charitable sector very regularly. And I think we don't have trainings or uh, educational opportunities that really talk about white supremacy as a system as opposed to individual actions by individual actors, which is where we often default to when we think about things like racism or anti-racism. How could I be a better person um, then translates into if I was a better person, I could be anti-racist as opposed to thinking about a system of policies and laws and rules and you know, social norms that make it possible for certain groups of people, in this case around race, for white people to be given priority access resources um, and legitimacy and credibility in the work that they're doing. And so the goal of the reacting to or refusing white supremacy was really for white people, uh, particularly in sectors that engage um, with some kind of service delivery function Mm -hmm. uh, to really think into what it means to have these individualized reactions around white supremacy and link it to a broader system. And so the refusal is about breaking solidarity with whiteness and breaking solidarity with white supremacy to come back into solidarity with black and racialized and indigenous peoples um, Mm -hmm. when when we're speaking about race. And then responding is the strategy. It's how do you respond to a system because if you get out of the sense that you're just responding to individual again actors saying individualized um, things that are often quite terrible um, you really have to think about how do you if you're talking about things like defunding and abolishing and dismantling how do you really do that in a very strategic 
um, you know, coherent way where you can pull a lot of people together to build a bit of critical mass to do that. And so this, for this season, the responding was really focused on black and racialized and indigenous peoples. So how do they respond to white supremacy? Um, because the assumption too is that they have a bit of a uh, more well-defined muscle around things like white supremacy and anti-racism anyway, considering that they need to know what racism looks like to survive their everyday lives. Um, but for our next season, the goal is to really work with white folks who are interested in what it looks like to dismantle and disrupt, uh, mm -hmm. to figure out how to be a little more strategic with one, with one another. Yeah. Oh, wow. I'm sure you face a lot of resistance in those kinds of sessions. <laughs> Yeah, you know, resistance is par for the course. I think anything that you're doing up that comes up against the status quo, people are going to have quite a significant reaction to. Um, you know, a lot of people who spend time with me, whether it's in my personal life or professional life, know that I'm I'm not really a negotiator on oppression. <laughs> I don't. You know, I just, I don't really, I don't leave a lot of room for people to come in with disagreement. I just tell them pretty plainly that this isn't quite the space. They're not ready for it yet. And to mm -hmm. come back when they've spent some time getting ready is really, mm -hmm. like, you can't negotiate with white supremacy. It is what it is. It does what it does. Um, it just means that whoever is engaging with that topic, they're not ready. They're just not ready to have that level of kind of insightful conversation. Right. Is there something, you know, it, are there things that people can do to be more ready? Or how, how does a white person know that they're ready to really um, refuse white supremacy? You know, I think journeys can begin with, with reading. Um, but I do think that there's, there's like some personal sort of, it, it does feel like really uh, a work that requires a white person to look inside and see the ways and acknowledge the ways that they've benefited. Um, so I guess like, yeah, how do, how do you prepare to refuse white supremacy and to do so like in good faith? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's a great question. So I would say you need to do some work around, white people need to do some more work around their emotional intelligence when it comes to racism. Right. So if every conversation about race ends up with um, reaction with people reacting and it's their own individual reactions. Um, and we know the difference between a reaction and a response, right? It's uh, you're in a grocery store and the person behind you says, you know, you're not two feet away from me. And you're like, that was a very extreme response to me being 10 centimeters closer than the two meters away from you. Right. And so we can tell what a reaction looks like because it's kind of abrupt. It's very fast. It's quite abrasive. Um, and it doesn't take into consideration somebody else's context. It just kind of a, a quick, fast trigger or, re or reaction. And so if you're at that stage of reacting around race, that's a clue that you need to do some more heavy lifting around figuring out how to respond, which is how do you allow someone else to come into your space and tell you what's happening for them without making it about yourself? Yeah. So once you can do that work, um, and you don't have to be very sophisticated at it, but once you're able to like breathe and not yell at the person who has said two meters, two meters, two meters, mm -hmm. and you're able to say, you know, have a great day, walk away. And for sure, you're, you know, cussing a little bit under your breath. But so long as your reactions don't bleed over into other people, I think, I think that's a space where people, people are ready. The problem with 
things like book clubs that I've been hearing people start and um, what I call passive learning, uh, what a lot of people call passive learning actually, is that picking up a book and reading it on a Sunday doesn't mean that you're ready. You have to be able to apply those concepts to your everyday life. And that's really hard if you've never had conversations or engagements around race before. Um, and I should say, if you've never had conversations or engagements around race before, that's a bit of a luxury. It's not a bit. It is. It's a significant it's a luxury. luxury. It's a significant luxury because other people talk about race as a way to survive. And yeah. if you're not talking about it at all, then, you know, there's something happening there. There's something to be said about the amount of power you carry as well, but get out of passive learning, like engage with material, but engage with it, ask questions, ask what it means for your life, ask what it means for your family. Think about the things you're downloading to the people around you um, and start to be disrupting your, the hardest place to disrupt is your personal space, right? Start there. Call, you know, your parent says something that is, you're like, no, 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 no. Don't let them just say it in your house and let it go, right? Start to do the work with them there. And as you do that, you build up a bit of a muscle and a reserve around having these conversations um, with other people. But practice with white people first is always the rule. Yeah. Of them. yeah. <laughs> um, and I think, I mean, you talk about the system of white supremacy. And you mentioned the fact that if this is not something we're actively thinking about, it means we're in a place of privilege where we don't have to, um, which is uh, unique in our society these days. Not unique, but uh, very extremely, I would say extremely privileged uh, if you're not thinking about what's happening uh, around race um, around us. Um, and so we talk about these systems, but then I also think that where we see systems changes through personal responsibility and personal action, right? So how do we take this systemic approach and, you know, maybe it's an easier in to not take things personally or not make things about us, but at the end of the day, we personally have a responsibility to to lead change. So how do we navigate that shift from that system to what we can personally do? Yeah, you, you know, you both are throwing some, some really great questions my way. <laughs> um, so part of the usefulness in starting with systems when, when we're having conversations about white supremacy is that people stop thinking that their personal reactions reveal something about their character Mm -hmm. around race and they it allows them to get out of this sense of you know if I, i'm only a racist if i'm a bad person mm -hmm. not racist if i'm a good person and when you start the conversation around white supremacy there you don't get very far because people are much more interested in preserving their sense of themselves yes and then it gets caught up against uh black or racialized or indigenous people experiencing racism also very um, responding rightfully so with where it, where it bumps up against where it impacts their life, right? Suddenly you've got groups of people having conversations about themselves, but only one of those groups of people has any significant power to change 
the condition of the other, right? But once you get into that self-preservation place, it's really complicated to have a conversation because you have to support people in backtracking all the way through all the things that they've done in their lives that make them great people and all (laughs) the friends they have that make them amazing. And by the time you get to that, the person who's experienced the harm is just tired. Um, They're just tired of the whole conversation. And then there's no action that happens. Yeah. It's just, yeah. Everyone leaves kind of defeated. A hundred percent. And I I don't know whether this is, this is the right approach, but you know, for me in some ways when I'm, I'm speaking with someone who's, uh, you know, a white person who's struggling to recognize the ways in which, you know, they are racist or are, you know, influenced by, you know, racist thought patterns, like, for me, I always say to them, listen, you know, I, as a white person who has grown up in this, you know, uh, global north, uh, Western culture, um, by default, I am racist, right? Like, by default, my, my impressions are formed by racist paradigms, like, there's just no way to avoid it. And, and I, I think, like, you know, white people have to get start getting comfortable with <laughs> with naming that about themselves, right? And and to your point, like recognizing that it's not about being a good person or a bad person. It's a you know, it's you know, the, the first step in, in any kind of um, personal transformation is is naming and acknowledging the place from which you know that that deficiency comes from or that you know inability to process or your anger issues or whatever it is, right? Um, and so like, it, it feels to me like that, that some of that first step has to be just naming that it's, it's, it's a part of growing up in this culture, um, that you will be informed by, by racist ways of, of viewing the world. And that's going to affect the way you make decisions and the way you perceive people. Um, and it, you know, it leads us into thinking about conversations about unconscious bias and stuff like that. But I don't really feel like on the, those kinds of conversations really get at the issue. Um, I, you know, is there anything that you, you want to reflect on with respect to, to conversations about unconscious bias um, when it comes to recognizing uh, the ways in which we are racist? Yeah. So thank you for that also reflection on you. I think people get very stuck in their own um, heads around, like I said, they get caught in that preservation. But I do want to make a very careful distinction, which is you start with the system, you start by saying your response is not um, atypical, it's very normal, because all white people are socialized to behave in this way when conversations around race come up. It's your response is actually no different than the hundreds of responses black and racialized and indigenous people see every day as part of their everyday lives. Like we see that there's a pattern. So you need to also see that there's a very clear structural pattern here. But the clear distinction I think that I make regularly is you are still responsible for the things that you do and say. Mm-hmm. That is yours to carry. It doesn't matter if you say you didn't know, you're still accountable for harm. And you have to be responsible and attentive to it. So, but this, this also gives people a way to think about action, right? Because I, I, I do truly believe that, except in some rare occasions, um, a lot of people don't intend to harm others. Mm. They don't leave their house that day saying, you know, my goal is to make people incredibly miserable today. 
That's <laughs> my goal in life, right? I don't, I don't think that's, that's my goal in life, but clearly, I get from you all the time. <laughs> might be some of our goals. Like it might be kind of what some of us are interested in doing, but I, I truly don't think that that's people's impetus. And and reminding people of harm is useful to a certain point, right? Because we also don't want people to become desensitized. Um, to the remindings of harm. So that's important, but also that the, you're still responsible. Mm. Still, if I had yelled back at, at the person who said I was within a two meter bubble, this is completely a fake story, by the way. <laughs> um, I'm still accountable to the fact, if something happens to her as a result of me yelling back at her, mm. I'm still accountable for it. And I'm still, I should feel the gravity and weight of that right? If, if she falls over because she's trying to turn away from me and she's harmed, I'll carry that with me. Yeah. I think that's such, and we've talked about that on the podcast, um, in, which is really like intention versus outcome. And sometimes, again, it goes back to that looking at the systems versus like, you know, I personally didn't mean to be racist. That wasn't my intention to harm someone, but you can't ignore the harm that's that's actually done. And I think um, for some people, unless we really check ourselves consistently, we have a hard time seeing the harm because we have these blinders on, because we have our own, um, you know, the the way we see the world is so influenced by those systems. How do we sort of, I don't want to, how do we open up our eyes to it and create space to be able to really understand, um, you know, whether you call the, whether they're outright aggressive or microaggressions that we really um, seek to understand the influence or the outcomes of our actions instead of focusing on our intentions, which we all know most people, most people right now in the world, I think there are certainly people with ill intentions, but for the most part, as you mentioned, uh, you know, we, it's not intentions necessarily that are the problem, but because of that, it's sometimes really hard to see the outcomes. Yeah. And for me, the, the root of this is power. Um, and yeah. Anya, you know, the, the thing that you ask about unconscious bias, there, I, I, I'm, not a, I'm not partial to unconscious bias. Mm-hmm. I don't actually know if it's as valuable as folks will say it is. And there's a lot of reasons why we, we talk about race and white supremacy. And then the trainings that are offered are unconscious bias, which arguably don't very regularly talk about race. Mm-hmm. And so one, we avoid conversations about race by bringing in new ideas. And then when you think about from the context of a work environment or, you know, a charity or, or an organization, especially charities and nonprofits, um, what you have happen is staff or clients bring forward concerns around race and senior leaders bring in unconscious bias training. <laughs> and what that does is it, it suggests that everybody in the room has the same um, level of power to engage in their mm-hmm. unco- in uncovering their bias. And mm-hmm. that's just not the truth. There was clearly a power imbalance that led to the training coming in, but it's a way for people to be like, I just didn't know that that's what was happening. And now we all know that we all have this thing called bias and we're all going to move through the world and we're going to be fine. We just have to be more attentive to the things we don't know. But what it doesn't ever address is some of us have the power to do things with our biases mm-hmm. and some of us don't. Mm-hmm. 
And so pretending that we're all coming from the same position of power is it's a futile exercise. We never actually resolve what it is that people are bringing, bringing to the table. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And I also, yeah, I want, I want to reflect uh, something on uh, that was said around like, you know, the, the, the difference between the impact um, and the intention. And, and I think, uh, you know, Cindy, you were asking about, well, like, how do we, how do we recognize uh, the impact, see that the impact that we're having and like, and, uh, you know, I, I get the sense and, and I know this from speaking to, you know, um, friends and family who are uh, racialized that like, you know, they feel that like they're so well trained in not showing the impact, mm-hmm. right? In like kind of, you know, hiding, hiding the harm a little bit because it's because it's you know self-preservation and could you imagine like the how i just i imagine how exhausting it must feel to like have to you know hide that impact over and over and over again and so you know white people are going well i don't i never saw the impact (laughs) you know what i mean like nobody ever said that i was doing the wrong thing and all this kind of bs right so so on the you know on the one hand you know this this I, I, you know, this, this effort to, to recognize and, you know, some people call that, you know, unconscious bias or whatever, but to your point, if it doesn't move beyond recognizing uh, the bias into, um, I see the way in which that bias is applied in the way that I speak to people, in the way that I make decisions about who I hire, in the way that I um, uh, make decisions about the kind of businesses I support, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? So it's like, it has to have that ripple effect and it has to start with the person who's not experiencing the harm. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think I think often I see people falling into a trap of like, well, if people just tell me, you know, what, what kind of hurt that they felt, well, then I could do better, right? And and it's, that can't be the solution either. You know, the kinds of examples that I use in some of the work that I do, I do a lot of trainings for organizations and do a lot of um, strategy consultations and what quote unquote we call DEI work in this, in this part of Canada currently. And the thing that I always ask people to reflect on is uh, a lot of people in the world uh, or in our communities, um, either parent, and I, I don't mean our parents, but I mean they parent. So they've got nephews and nieces, they've got children in their lives or around them, their friends have kids. So they, we, we have children as kind of a unifying space where we can often point to and think through. And one of the things that I often ask people to think about is what makes it possible for us to, we know what harm looks like, we're just not paying attention. And the example is we mm-hmm. see a child come back from something and we immediately can see something is wrong because we're paying attention, right? We've clued into what going on enough to be like, oh, your shoulders are a little bit slumped and you're answering me in one word phrases and you don't want to look me in the eye. And then we begin to probe, you know, did you eat lunch today? Oh, uh, how was your friend? What did you teach? What was, what was the best thing about school? We start to do this kind of question-based inquiry to, to figure out and they never tell us, right? It, especially children under 10, they never just say this thing happened to me. And it was terrible. It's like, you've got to like, how did you feel about it? Why did it bother you so much, right? We've got to pull at these tendrils. We're very good at doing that when we want to. But why can't we apply those exact same lessons to racism and white supremacy? We know this stuff. When we talk about things like empathy and caring for people, we know this. There are people in our lives that we're very attentive to. So what 
shuts you off, what shuts white people off from being able to apply that same approach to a colleague after a meeting where everyone was like, oh, that meeting was gross. What stops people from saying, how did you feel about the meeting? What did you think was going on? Like what, what stops us from digging in a little bit and figuring out and making sense of what's happening for them? Yeah. Holy crap. I mean, it just, it speaks to like the violence of, of, of racism, you know, writ large, which is to say that it's, it's a project in dehumanizing white people, non-white people. Right. So, so, you know, for the white person to be able to, to bring that level of empathy to a person who is racialized and who they know or suspect has probably experienced harm requires them to move beyond this notion of, you know, of the dehumanization of non-white people, right? It's just, it's, it's such a violent um, framework that, that we have used to define and classify everything for the last 200 years. And like, and very intentionally, uh, it was applied as a framework, you know, I I think what resonates for me is, is um, Rania uh, El-Mujamar's phrasing, um, you know, uh, in her anti-oppression work, um, and she speaks about like liberation by design, right? Like that the system that we live under, this white supremacist sister system, was intentionally um, by design applied, and so you know we can use the same kind of design principles to arrive at a place beyond the system, right? Um, and I think you know your 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 um, you know, highlighting of the system is obviously like one of the ways that we can, can we can begin to unpack or deconstruct that system and perhaps put one in place that would um, see us all liberated from this incredibly violent and oppressive framework. Um, like, what what do you think that the the nonprofit sector can do to insert itself in that process, um, if anything? Oh boy. <laughs> Let me just, I'm just thinking, <laughs> no, <laughs> you know, the reason I, I immediately was like, oh boy, is because we, so we moved from these individual, these conversations with individuals, right, into a sector. And so now we've moved into institutions and mm-hmm. where you can have the kinds of conversations that we're talking about around how do you use the empathy that you use in other places and translate them into the places you feel the most amount of discomfort? Because this translates to all oppressions, right? I'm a person that um, is, you know, fairly physically mobile. So I have to also have these kinds of conversations with myself in my head. I have to build a bit of resiliency around, yeah, you're right. I didn't include ASL in the meeting invite. And I also didn't think about um, whether or not this space was physically accessible. There's some things I need to, I, I need to also shift empathy, places where I have demonstrated empathy to people in my life to the places where I hold some power in a more careful and rigorous way. Um, so this can be applied, I think, across a number of different uh, anti-oppressive initiatives. Mm-hmm. But the challenge here is, when you move from that individual piece to the institution, the sector has an, a, an idea about itself, um, mm-hmm. a myth about itself that's really hard to come up against. Mm-hmm. And you become quickly ostracized if you contest that myth um, that it has around itself. So 
you really saw it irrespective of what people think about what's happened with um, the we, we charity. I have lots of opinions myself, but you really saw how the sector closed some ranks around itself, right? And, and key leaders would say things, key organizations would say things like, not all of us are like this. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we're all just working in service of the communities we're in service to. And th- there was no room to say, really? <laughs> we're all doing this? Are you sure? <laughs> mm-hmm. I disagree. You couldn't say that without being just removed, quietly removed from, from the conversations. Yeah, can you can you uh, sort of uh, you know you, we've talked about the the myth that the the nonprofit sector has set up about itself. Can can you talk a little bit about about that um, for our listeners? Yeah. So the the myth that I I've seen in my time working in the nonprofit sector is that because our service delivery is going towards people who need it the most and are the most marginal and have the least amount of power, we are doing great and excellent work. And because we are doing great and excellent work, it means that we know the language, we have a good sense of systems and structures, um, because how could we be bad, right? And I talk about we as in, Mm -hmm. how could staff and organizations and structures be bad if the work we do is so good? (laughs) What makes that terrible? Oof. Uh, yeah, I, no. think I was going to make a correlation um, that would be a little bit uh, tasteless. So I'm not going to because we probably have to edit it out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I think I mean we've had that conversation uh, with other guests as well, um, and continue to to see these conversations, uh, which is yeah, like we were in the sector of doing good, which sort of. It's almost like this sort of like halo. Well, then we are good, you know, and that's uh, like nothing can be further from the truth. Um, there are great organizations. There are great workplace cultures, but there are many, many organizations that don't live uh, the values of their work. Um, and I guess maybe let's, let's, as, as institutions or as individuals and in institutions, how do we, it's, it's a complicated question, but I, I mean, it, we often hear the, the term, how, it's like speaking truth to power. And, um, you know, for people who do want to take action to be part of that change, not just personally, which we all, you know, that's one level of action, but how do we start to change our, our workplace cultures, um, that's a big question, but maybe like any, any thoughts or, or anything you've seen work with organizations who've had, who've had success in shifting um, white supremacy within their organizations? Yes. So the biggest changes can happen with individual actors Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the you know claims that I make all the time when I'm talking to individual actors is that people's individual responses actually become organizational responses. Mm-hmm. And in the same way that people's individual reactions become organizational reactions. Um, mm-hmm. And here's, here's a really great example. When um, George Floyd was murdered, there was like a flurry of requests for consultants to come in and do mm-hmm. DEI stuff. Um, and most of those requests happened actually because... Um, organizations were 
um, freaked out that staff would think they weren't doing anything. And I mean, leaders, right? Board members, senior leaders were terrified staff would think that they weren't responding or doing anything and terrified that staff might turn around and say, this organization slash you are racist. And so they put out these statements with no thoughtfulness and care. I mean, we give more attention to press releases, right? (laughs) Than Mm -hmm. some organization gave to these public statements. Staff tore these statements apart, like terrible. Just the things I've seen, I've thought, oh my gosh, why did you publish that? Why? Why didn't anybody read it for you? This is awful. They put it out into the world. Staff tore it apart. And then they brought in these consultants because they were like, we've clearly missed the mark on a lot of things and we have no idea how to resolve this. So here we are going to bring in somebody who hopefully resembles, because we're it was all about representation who hopefully resembles the staff that are the most upset so we Mm. can pacify them, Mm. placate them for a little while. Um, We're going to hastily pull together a strategy in two or three months, maybe a committee or a task force. Mm -hmm. They're going to tell us the two or three key priorities to focus on. And then hopefully this will all be finished in a couple of months and we won't have to revisit this until next year put a nice big red bow on it and call it done. And everyone did that. And that was absolutely when it talk about reactions being things that are hasty and abrasive and kind of blurty that those were all reactions. Yeah. None of those were responses. None of those thought I am deeply uncomfortable, very few senior leaders, but there are some great examples thought I am so uncomfortable with this conversation uh, that, I, it's very clear to me I've done no work around race. I need to go do some work to figure out what the organization actually needs at this time. Wow. Wow. That's, that's actually a, um, that's a, a very helpful response. No, I mean like that to your point around the difference between reaction, reaction and, and response, right? It, it, do you think that, that in some cases, like the organizations that you worked with, like you, you helped them move from, from, you know, an organizational reaction to, you know, hey, you have to do the personal response work first? Yes, because when I, when I come in, often the conversations, the first conversations, the ones I'm having with you now are similar to this, right? Which is, why are you rushing? Have mm-hmm. you talked to the staff that have sent you the note or the letter, torn apart your statement? Have you figured out what it is the organization is doing? And also, do you know the parameters of your structure, are you making promises in areas that actually don't fit with your mission, vision, and values? Are you moving outside of the scope of your organization just because you're terrified about what they could say to you? Mm-hmm. Are you mm-hmm. actually fulfilling your goal and objective? And this is the interesting part about white supremacy, right? White people can make decisions about whatever they want in this sector, I mean, in our world, but also in this sector, if this was a black or a racialized or indigenous person, I could put money on the fact that the board would have asked those questions. They would have asked them those questions because they would have seen the diversity initiative that came out of the organization as something that that individual wanted to do. Right. Right. They would have. Not as best practice. Yeah. And which is, you know, again, like, you know, putting the burden on solving white supremacy on the person who's experienced it as a violent, um, you know, as a violent structure. Yeah. Yeah. And this is what I mean around reaction and response. So yeah, individual actors have a lot. We, 
if we really want to talk about what people want to do, organizations before they embark upon diversity, equity, and training should talk about power. Mm-hmm. Who makes mm-hmm. decisions? When do they make decisions? When's the process? What is the process? How does power move in the organization? Who holds it? Who doesn't? What forces the organization to act or not act? Right. These are all conversations around power. And that fundamentally, I think if you want organizations to change and shift, that's a much more productive place to start Mm -hmm. than um, kind of these piecemeal initiatives that are really about reactions. Yes. That's such great advice. And I feel like that's, you know, it's like um, going to the doctor and you can't uh, prescribe something without understanding what's going on and doing that almost like a power, I don't want to call it a power audit, but really understanding the formal and informal structures of power. Uh, We always talk about uh, in our work, alignment and solutions are not the same for every organization. You have to uncover where the organization is to provide those solutions. And this approach to um, any, or working towards ending white supremacy, uh, I think, has to start with that too. Understanding how it lives in your organization, and that there's no one size fits all solution. Exactly. Exactly. And so, but, but somehow we're working, we're, and you know, the interesting thing about these diversity and equity initiatives is we still can't say they're about race. Mm. Like George Floyd, a black man was killed in the United States. And that's what's prompted all of this. And still we say DEI instead of anti-racism. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, yeah. The, you know, something is happening that makes this so difficult for people to say, yes, we're doing anti-racism work instead of, and then, and then the conversations are too complex. You can't set up a DEI structure without knowing exactly what you're focusing on. Are you talking about ability, disability? Are you talking about age? <laughs> are you talking about citizenship? Like what, what are you focused on? That's right. Yeah. That's yeah. right, because it, it, it seems like, you know, that the, the low-hanging fruit is representation, right? Um, but and quotas. In, in, yeah, and quotas, exactly. And, and, but the real work, you know, we, we know is about, you know, the, the transformation of, of that culture. And I, I saw, uh, saw it articulated beautifully. I think it was um, uh, Jonathan Nightingale who had articulated as such. He said, like, culture org org culture is has nothing to do with the deck where you describe your org culture it's simply the answer to this question what do i have to do to get ahead in this company and the answer to that question um, is the org culture and if the answer is part of that answer is well be white um you know like you've identified this, the, the, the root of the problem, right? Like you've identified that you have a culture that's, that is um, being fed by white supremacy. Um, and that's the harder, that's the harder thing to do, right? Like um, 100%. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, we could keep going and going. We could. <laughs> this is not, uh, well, I think that that's the point. We literally could keep going and going. There's, there's so much work to be done. Um, this is, there's no quick and easy solutions, but how a, 
I really, I think Anya and I both really appreciate your time today and in sharing um, your wisdom to help our audience and organizations and individuals um, hopefully understand and and take that understanding into action um, because that's that's where we see change. Um, where can our listeners learn more? about you, the work you're doing, uh, or be in touch if they want to um, work with you on, on any of this? Yeah, great question. So they can likely find most of my information at hymire.ca. I'm an avid um, Twitter user, so uh, at H-Y-M-I-R-E. That was an amazing follow. She's (laughs) an avid Twitter user. She's an amazing follow. (laughs) Thanks, Anya. I really, um, I like Twitter. It's, there's an interesting way to share information with people in a way that they somehow seem to pick up much faster than um, some of the other social media avenues. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, we'll, we'll put all that information in the show notes. Um, Yeah right there and easy to get. Yeah. Excellent. Um, how I thank you again, Anya. It's always a pleasure having you co-interview. Um, so thank you as well. And of course, thank you to all of our listeners, not just for listening, but to, uh, for taking that information and turning it into meaningful action. We'll see you next time. Well, folks, that's it for today's episode of The Small Nonprofit. I'm your host, Cindy Wagman, and this show is brought to you by The Good Partnership. As a reminder, if you want more resources around raising more money for your small nonprofit, visit thegoodpartnership.com and download our free fundraising strategy guide. I'll see you next week.